Wake up, world. You are now tuned in to the Wake Up and Win podcast, and I'm your host, Devon Pouncey. We're here at the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, which is also the home of 1029 and 750 The Game. Uh, I got Sarah Scrivens here with me. She's back. How you doing, Sarah? <laughs> I'm good, Devon. Good to be back. <laughs> hey, absolutely, absolutely. So we're going to jump right into it today. Today, Sarah and I have a very special guest. Um, this lady has done a lot of work with ESPN and Outside the Line. Uh, she's an author, a phenomenal author, by the way. Uh, she's a freelance writer as well. And we're going to just jump straight into it. We got Jessica Luther here. Jessica, how you doing? I'm good. How are y'all? I'm doing very well. How you doing, Art Sarah? <laughs> I'm doing great. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so so first off, you, um, you're pretty brave in your approach of things you cover. You cover a lot based on the politics of assault and rape and rape culture and college sports. And before we kind of get into the meat of things, what kind of inspired you to do so? That's a nice compliment for you to say I'm brave. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's brave. It's yeah. very brave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what got me into it? I don't know. It's kind of fell into it. I love college football. I always talk about how it's generational fandom in my family. Like my parents both went to Florida state and my dad was a huge Florida state football fan is a huge Florida state football fan. He'd be mad at me for putting that in the past tense. And I only applied to go to one school cause I was going to go to college to watch Florida state football, which is what I did. And so die hard fan. And I sort of came upon the issue, the intersection, I guess of college football and sexual violence in the summer of 2013, there were a couple high profile cases, one at Vanderbilt, one at Navy. It was on my radar when in November of 2013, uh, sort of infamously, famously, uh, the then quarterback for Florida State, Jameis Winston, who's now uh, with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, it came out that he had been under investigation for 11 months for sexual assault. And sort of the Tallahassee PD hadn't done much with it, that school hadn't done anything about it. And it became a huge media circus. And so I sort of that's where I started writing about it and really thinking about it. And I started with media criticism and that eventually morphed into actually doing reporting on this topic. So you started that you, you went to Florida State and you are your book. I want to get into your book a little bit. Your book is called Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. And kind of I've been fortunate enough to actually read the book. And you kind of focus on uh, the systemic aspect of rape culture and assault culture and college sports. Kind of break down some of the systemic issues that may be going on right now and kind of what you talked about in your book. Yeah, it was important to me in writing the book that it be a systemic look. I think one of the things that we're really comfortable with in our society is when one of these cases comes to light, we like to pick it apart. Like it's an isolated event and we're going to tear apart this one story and we can always do that. And then we sort of, once we've torn it apart, we can move on from it and not really deal with the underlying issues. Right. And, and so it was important for me to be able to tackle pun intended this issue with on the systemic level. So there's a chapter in the book that looks at how, university football coaches and administrators, athletic directors, the ways that they respond when these reports come up, the overlap between local police departments or campus police departments and athletic departments. Uh, you know, I look at the way that the NCAA doesn't 
do much about this issue. Uh, a lot of lip service that they pay to it. Um, and then the role that the media plays, which I want, I want to believe is getting better. Yeah. Um, all of them are getting better maybe, but you know, I talk a lot about money and how money functions and all of this. There's talk in the book about just sort of the overall exploitation of the system of college football and sort of these very powerful white men who sit at the top of everything um, and benefit a lot from the fact that like we don't normally criticize the overall system that they're looking at. So those are kind of, that's like the broad scope of the book. Hey, Jessica, um, I also have had the chance to read your book and very well done. You did an awesome job with it. Um, A lot of great research in there. Um, So my question is, you lay all this out, all of the, um, all the facts, all the figures, um, you dive deep into some case studies on it. And what is apparent is there's kind of this cultural failure in the world of college football, I guess, football in general. And based off your research and your experience, do you, is there a place where we can start to kind of change this culture or what is your take on that? Yeah, I want to say yes to that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I'm weirdly optimistic at the same time that I'm very cynical. So yeah, it's, where do we start? I mean, one thing I wrote in the book, so I do have this section at the end of the book that was very important to me when I sort of laid out the proposal that I would suggest things that could change and and could make things better because I couldn't imagine just writing on this sad topic without offering anything um, up as like a possible change to the system. You know, one of the things in there is that these coaches get paid so much money in big time college football, like amazing amounts. I'm I'm so stuck on how much Nick Saban gets paid this year. Like I think there's only three coaches in the rest of the world that get more money than him for coaching a team. Um, and, And so one thing, you know, coaches need to like feel the pain uh, when they're overseeing a program that has sort of institutional cultural failure. And in the last year, we actually saw two coaches lose their jobs for this mm-hmm. exact reason. Art Bryles at Baylor and um, Tracy Clay's at Minnesota, different cases, but around sort of how badly they had handled the issue of sexual violence within their program. Um, and so that's the kind of stuff that gives me a little bit of hope like that, you know, this is the, if if they're not going to change what they're doing because they care very deeply about this issue and about how it affects victims if it if they do it because it hurts their pocketbooks and their job security then I'm okay with that too um i don't know i you know one big thing that has to change and this is a hard thing to change is sort of just the endemic misogyny um and that's a sports culture thing i mean part of the struggle with this book and the work that i do is like i do write about college football and there's reasons for it because of its popularity and its money and all this other stuff. But like, this is true. And, you know, throughout sports, throughout our society, um, but just sort of like general misogyny that sort of works its way in um, to sports culture in general. You know, we see it in football, especially because it's such a masculine, it's a space where we like define masculinity. Um, That's hard to do though. Right. And there are a lot of educators right now trying to figure out like how to get into these teams and these locker rooms and work with coaches in order to, teach other ways to think about women and the place of women in the world. Yeah. So with that being said, I kind of want to dive into consent because uh, while I do think colleges and even the media is getting a lot better 
at talking about it, you know, with their athletes. I do still believe that um, there are a lot of people that are ignorant to what consent actually is. And I know that there's many different uh, different elements to maybe what the definition would be of consent. But how would you kind of break down some of the important factors and elements of what consent actually is? Yeah, I think that we have such a, um, there's one way that we talk about it and it's always sex. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's a problem because we actually are constantly negotiating consent in all sorts of ways in relationships. Right. And the sort of jokey thing that I always say is like when you ask your parents to respect the fact that you can't talk to them at a certain time of day and they call you anyway, you're like, yeah. dude, like we talked about this, <laughs> like, right. This is, you know, that's not sexual consent, but there is like a way that we're always negotiating within relationships about what boundaries look like and whether or not we're going to choose to respect people's boundaries. So we could be having a much larger conversation, but within, um, you know, within sex, which is of course where this is the place that we talk about it. Um, you know, the one thing that I always try to bring up, most people have a pretty good feel at this point for no means no. Right. Yeah. Like if you don't understand no means no at this point, like, holy, yeah, holy. <laughs> right. Um, and no means no is right. And if someone says no, you should stop. Absolutely. Uh, but there's like a conceptual thing here that I think is really important. Um, no means no puts all of the burden of consent on the person who is about to be victimized. So if they need to say no, they need to say no enough. They need to say no loud enough. They need to say it enough times. They need to push back. They need to physically fight back. They need to be doing all these things in order to make sure that they have gotten across that no is how they feel in this moment, right? Right. Um, I'm a much bigger fan of yes means yes. And I'm not a legal person, so whether or not that should be the law. But if you, like as an individual, are operating in a relationship with someone both parties should know 100% that the other person wants to do what they want to do. And yes means yes, then splits that burden for both people, both people that are engaging or multiple people, whatever your deal is, like everyone in that moment needs to like be 100% in and like you should know that. And if you don't know that, then you should figure out a way to communicate that. And that's everyone's burden at that point. Um, and that's such a healthier way. I think to imagine like what consent can be, can be and should be in relationships. And again, you can definitely make that, a, you know, that's definitely true in sex, but you can apply that to all kinds of moments within relationships where you're negotiating boundaries. Um, and so we have a chance to, to tell people, to teach people about this healthier way to like move through the world and interact with other people. Um, but yeah, we don't, we tend not to do a very good job of it. And we do have this very central idea now within our society of the no means no, which is true, but it's just not far enough yet. I really like that idea. The whole yes means yes thing. That's like a very, you know, you're opening my eyes to that right now. <laughs> Honestly, that's a really <laughs> great way to look at it. Um, and so, so I actually, we met um, this year, earlier this year yes. at the Association for Women in Sports Media Convention. And yeah. um, you were on a fantastic panel um, that included Brenda Tracy. And um, I was just curious how, I don't know, um, carrying over what you were just talking about, like how you feel about the work she's doing. And if you think there are ways that maybe the schools could be springboarding off of the work she's been doing, or if how maybe we can make this a more widespread thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm a huge fan of Brenda Tracy. Uh, She (laughs) is an assault survivor from, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago, um, who only very recently has come forward publicly with her story and it involved multiple football players at, I want to say, Oregon State. Yeah, it was. And yes. uh, Yeah, that's you're part of the world. And (laughs) yeah. And so one of the things she does now is she talks to all kinds of athletes, but specifically football programs and tells them her story and asks these athletes to sort of stand up and be the example of how to do this right in the world and sort of lead on this. And yeah, I, I had never, I've known Brenda for a little while and I've talked to her on the phone and everything. And that was the first time that I had ever heard her tell her story. And I was trying really hard in front of the group not to lose it. (laughs) It's very very powerful. powerful. Like, remarkably so even though I knew what she was going to say but there's just a way that she delivers it and Mm -hmm. I I think her work is very important and I think we need all kinds of work right like we need survivors in there telling their stories we need educational material that coaches can use to talk to their players which exists by the way like there's this amazing group called um, Futures Without Violence and they have a program called Coaching Boys into Men that I'm a huge fan of which is this great integrated material that coaches can use throughout a season to have these conversations with their players if they want to. There's actually new, I'm, I'm working on it right now here in Texas where I live, the high school coaches association just created their own educational material to help coaches within the state who want to start the conversation around this stuff. So that kind of thing exists. And I think that, you know, um, alongside what Brenda's doing, like all that kind of work is amazing and, you know, credit to, survivors of this kind of violence of any kind of violence really uh who can get in front of a group of people and kind of like cut open the wound over and over again Mm -hmm. in the service of teaching the next generation about a better way to do it um i just i have endless respect for that yeah for sure i actually uh over this past weekend uh i went to the university of oregon versus nebraska game oh nice yeah because there exactly because i got uh we're contracted with the university of oregon so i covered them and she was there because mike riley who was the oregon state coach at the time that she was assaulted who she started off obviously having a pretty salty relationship it was just beautiful to see that they've been able to mend things to go forward and push their message and she's been out to the university of nebraska to speak with his team so i think it's just really brave of her to be able to be forgiving and most importantly put kind of her own personal feelings to the side for coach mike riley to ultimately push this bigger message here so that's just kind of a side note it it was very interesting And it was fun to see. But while you were here in Oregon, when I got to meet you at Pacific University and host you at the colloquium, you and I actually had a really good conversation because, um, I like I said, I've read your book. And obviously you have ties to Florida State. You went to Florida State and you opened up the book early on in the book. You talked about the Jameis Winston case. And mm-hmm. I was able to be transparent with you, which I thank you for allowing me to do that. I was able to be transparent with you and kind of let you know that at the time I felt a little bit uncomfortable being an athlete, somebody who's been an athlete and even an African-American athlete, just knowing kind of what it's like to be a commodity on campus. And I would say that I was very ignorant, but I've also been able to talk to other other college athletes and 
when you ask them about, you know, rape culture on campuses and what are their initial thoughts when you talk about rape in college, they had more so the mentality that I did, and they focused more so on false accusations. And Mm -hmm. I was able to kind of talk to you about that and tell you my perspective. Like when I first read the book or opened the book, I was a little bit uncomfortable because I also had that same mentality of focusing on false accusations, you know, kind of just coming from an athlete's perspective. But I want you to kind of tell us what your take is on how we should cater to this rape culture especially from an athlete's perspective, because I think that this is something that athletes really need to hear on how to kind of take themselves out of it and more so, you know, focus on the victim rather than focus on themselves being falsely accused. Yeah, this is the big thing with this conversation. And I just want to say to you that the conversation we had when I met you was very important to me and I really appreciated um you're you being candid with me about the book. And I, yeah, it's hard, right? Um, we have this obsession in our culture with the idea that someone will be falsely accused. Uh, and, you know, all the statistics that exist on this say that the likelihood of that is two to 8% of cases are false accusations. Um, and that's on par with every other kind of crime yeah. that exists. Right. So there's nothing odd about those numbers. Um, and But this is the one space where we obsess over whether or not someone could be falsely accused. And, you know, a, a lot of that goes back to sort of the murkiness we have and the way that our society talks about consent. Right. Um, so it makes it easier to have to feel murky around this issue. Um, but I think, you know, just sort of understanding the statistics on it, I always have like sort of a pithy answer. Like I'm only going to talk about this 2% of the time. Um, just to sort of always focus us back on what the real issue is. And I, you know, the other thing about this is that, what's the right way to say this? Like, I think in our society, we generally approach this particular type of violence from the perspective of a potential perpetrator rather than a victim, by which I mean people are, it's easier for people to believe that they would be falsely accused than that they could ever be a victim. Right. right. Um, and so everything is sort of funneled through that viewpoint. And, and so again, statistically, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't even make sense statistically for men. Like men are yeah. more likely to be victims of this kind of violence wow. than they are to actually be falsely accused. Um, but of course everything gets heightened for you guys that are athletes. Um, you do have a spotlight on you. You do your, you know, you're under a, a specific type of scrutiny. Um, so in the case of like Baylor, where they have been all over the news, um, you know, the intense media has been about the football team, you know, and I, I'm part of that. I've written about that. Right. Um, but the overall investigation into what happened at Baylor was a university-wide issue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this was not just a football team thing, even if it was sort of concentrated there. But the media makes it seem as if it's a football issue solely. And that's a problem in how we handle this topic. We, we like the sensationalism of it when we can tie it to something we care about. And then, like, one of the things that you and I talked about and that I write about in the book um, for big money sports and college football and basketball, the majority of the players are black men. And there's this, this, you know, horrific historical legacy in this country of, 
using false accusations of sexual violence against black men to harm them, um, you know, and sometimes kill them. So all of these things are like at play in this moment. And that makes it really hard to figure out like how to navigate that. And I, you know, I only have my perspective. And so talking to you matters a lot to me to get yours. Um, But yeah, it's just, how do you get, how would you get an athlete to, I don't, I think this is one of the great challenges of sort of how we rewire the way that all of us think about this issue. So we're not so focused on the possible false accusation and rather the very real reality of how many people are victimized by gendered violence within our society. But that takes a kind of empathy that we're just not very good at yet. Um, And, you know, for these players, like, you know, they're getting messaging starting at a very young age about women, about their place in society. And they're getting it from their coaches, from parents, from all kinds of people that they're looking up to. So it's not enough to sort of say like, we need to change this with athletes. Like it's got to come from the top down. And this is one reason that I've pushed very hard for like coaches need to lead the way here too. Like I do think athletes should, but, um, it's not like they are just out out of nowhere getting this kind of messaging. Yeah. Um, so it, you know, this is part of the stuff I write about. I, that was a very long answer. No, to your it, question. it's it, such no, a complicated. It, it's, yeah, definitely. It, it's very complicated, but I think, you know, the only place to really start is to at least talk about it and discuss it and, yeah. you know, make people think on it. And then from there, you know, you can take it how you want to take it and, go forward but if it doesn't get discussed i think it'll be that way because like i said had i not met you or talked to you about this i would probably still have the same mentality that i had when i first opened your book rather than by the time that i finished the book so it was very important for me which is why i felt like i wanted to discuss it here on the podcast and that you were the right person to discuss it with (laughs) well thank you so much indeed um Kind of going back to what you're talking about, um, talking about the high school programs in Texas. Is that what yes. you were? Yes. Um, I'm, and you're, we're just talking about working from the top down. I'm really curious to hear kind of if you don't mind detailing that a little bit, because I think, like you said, it really does, you know, early exposure to some of these topics and better ways to handle them could potentially and probably would be helpful in the long run. Oh, absolutely. Like my joke is always that if I ruled the world, which would be amazing, uh, <laughs> that we would teach consent in kindergarten. Yeah, um, for sure. Because, because again, it's you, it's not all, it's not about sex. Like you can teach it in so many ways that have like Definitely. my son is today is actually his ninth birthday. Oh, um, happy and, birthday. Happy birthday to your son <laughs> and to you too. And, it's been a lot of hard work. Seriously. I'm sure. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. But, um, you know, we talk about like, issues of boundaries on the playground and like touching other children and like whatever. I mean, there's all these ways you can talk to kids about this, but yeah. So on some level, it's weird that we're having a conversation about all these things starting. It feels like it starts in college. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that just feels false. Like it's a false, um, way to imagine how this education should work. And so I am really interested in like what, high schools are doing or, or middle schools or anything when they're younger. Um, and yeah, I don't know a ton about this Texas program. It's called starting the conversation and it was created by the Texas high school coaches association, which is so fascinating to me, um, for all the things that, you know, 
frustrates me about the state every once in a while we'll do like this amazingly progressive thing so to have the high school coaches of texas um and they created this material these resources there's three videos where they have basically athletes they look like they're high school athletes talking candidly about these issues in a locker room there's um two guys three guys and a woman um it's diverse. The group is diverse and they're talking about consent and the pressures that they feel and how sex works, um, within their high school group and as an athlete. And then they have all these resources that go along with it that you can download. And then they have like talking points for coaches to help them. Like once your, your athletes have watched this video, here's the way you can talk about it with them. Um, and I've heard, I'm, I'm doing work on this right now to sort of, I want to tell this story um, in a piece, but I've heard that this came out of a lot of coaches w- wishing that they had some way to talk about it, but they don't know either, right? The coaches came up in the same system as everybody else um, and they don't have these lessons and, and they were asking for them. So, you know, it's really at the beginning, they launched it just earlier this year. And so it's voluntary, Um and it'll be interesting to see how it works if anyone uses it and, and what impact that actually has. But it made me excited to see where it came from. And the material is good. I've watched the videos. I, I was impressed by uh, the content itself. That's great. Yeah, I think I could see where people are like, all right, it's sex is, can be an uncomfortable topic to talk about. And so where are we going to introduce the conversation about sexual consent? But you're totally right that it doesn't necessarily have to be a sexual conversation. It could just be about consent in general. And so um, I am curious to see how that goes, too. Um, very cool. Yeah, yeah. So, so Jessica, just one last mm-hmm. question, and it's not necessarily about assault and rape. It's just a question that I like to ask all of our guests who join okay. the podcast. So the podcast is called The Wake Up and Win Podcast. And I get so many diverse answers to this question, so I'd have to ask you, um, when you wake up, is there any rituals that you may have or anything that you do to kind of jumpstart the day for you to go out and win and have a successful day? Oh, that's a great question. And now you're going to make me think I'm so ritual oriented. Like, what is it that I do? Um, yeah, and I'm just going to admit this to you guys. I mean, I do talk about this all the time. But like my favorite uh, escape uh, from especially from this work is I actually love romance novels. Really? Like there's a guaranteed happy ending. I mean, just uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. you know, in like comparison to the um, work that I do. And most mornings I wake up and that's the first thing I do is like read whatever book it is that um, I've been reading. And then I'm probably just so cliche. Like I get up and drink coffee and sort of (laughs) I walk the dog. Um, I I do these kind of internal things in the morning to get me going before I have to go out into the world. Yeah, that's a great question. I'm going to I'm going to think on that now. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) And and it's cool because it's unique that you said like reading a romance novel because Mm -hmm. it has a happy ending. We've never had that answer on here before. (laughs) Somebody might take it and listen to this podcast and start reading romance novels now. Thanks to you. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) for sure. For sure. Well, uh, lastly, I just kind of want you to kind of tell your social media where people can follow you, um, promote yourself, your podcast, your book, just all that good stuff. Break it down to us. Sure. Um, yeah, I co-host a feminist sports podcast called Burn It All Down. And so you can find us all over 
social media with that name. Um, our website's burnitalldownpod.com where you can find all the episodes. A couple episodes ago, I interviewed Jamel Hill about yeah. a lot of this stuff, the ESPN Sports Center host. And that was really fun. Oh, yeah, I listened to um, that. It was dope. Yep. Yeah, she's great. Uh, and then I'm on, I'm technically on Twitter at SCATX, but I haven't, I'm not actually really on it. So I've kind of taken a break, but I'm, I pop on there every once in a while. Um, you can find all my writing at JessicaWLuther.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, that's the best way is to do it through the website. Cool, cool. Well, thanks for joining. We appreciate you so much. Uh, great conversation. Glad we were able to have this conversation. I know we've been trying to put this together for a little while and continue the great work that you're doing. And like I said, I appreciate you for joining Sarah and I here on the podcast. Thank you guys. Indeed. Have a good one. Thank you, Jessica. So Sarah, that was pretty dope. (laughs) That was pretty dope. I mean, I like the fact that, like I said, when I met her, it was interesting because when I first opened that book and she was talking about Jameis Winston, I instantly went into Black mode, honestly, you know what I mean? Like being an African-American and, you know, talking about something like that, not just black mode, but athlete mode. I was telling you before we kind of, you know, started interviewing Jessica that being an athlete is sort of like a fraternity in itself. Although it's technically not a fraternity, those are the people that we relate to. And that's ultimately one of your biggest networks moving forward, you know, once you graduate college, you'll usually keep in contact with guys that you played with or that were on the football team. In my case, I played basketball, so I still keep in touch with a lot of guys that were on the football team and hardly ever keep in touch with any of the fraternities that were on my campus because being an athlete was sort of my fraternity. So it was interesting just being able to talk to people and just randomly ask them, like, hey, what's your thoughts on, like, you know what I mean, rapes? rape and sexual assault uh, on college campus. And a lot of them had the same mentality that I did. Like, you know, false accusations, it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. Like it's definitely touchy because obviously you're talking about rape, but the fact that majority of our mentality is to focus on the false accusation. I'm not saying that, it's wrong, but it definitely shouldn't be the first thought that comes to mind because I still, you know, I still feel some type of way about like false accusations. But the fact that that's the first thing that comes to mind when we talk about rape culture, it's kind of got to change. Definitely. And I have to say, when you told me about your story and your um, conversation with Jessica, I was it really opened my eyes to that whole different perspective on it. Yeah. And um, I've really appreciated talking to you about that as well. And I really thought Jessica's point about it, um, her point was really great. Yeah. When she was talking about opening the conversation. and uh, Yeah, between opening the conversation and even, like I said, my unapologetically blackness. <laughs> when she <laughs> mentioned that, a lot of college athletes are black guys. And she yeah. kind of went into the historical side of things and how black men were treated. And I think this is something that I try to do. We We've had... Malika's been on. You've been on. You know, I, I, I enjoy having people like you two that are women in sports media that deal with some of the dis. You, even though you may not look at it this way, there's still some disadvantages of being a woman in sports media, which is part of the reason why Jessica has a feminist podcast, because there's just some things that are kind of wrong about that. I've had Jacqueline Keeler on to talk about Native American issues. And, you know, obviously I, I talk a lot about 
protesting that's going on right now, Colin Kaepernick, things of that sort, and just people who are oppressed in many different ways. And sometimes we tend to focus on our own oppression so much that we forget about other people's oppressions. And that's why I like to kind of bring a different blend of things, like I said, whether it be race, whether it be gender. Sometimes we just like to sit on here and have fun, too. <laughs> like, no. that, like we like to sit on here and have fun. But I just want to try to bring that blend of different oppressed groups together to try to figure out, OK, I'm an African-American man that deals with my own issues as an African-American man. But how do I help out that Native American person over there, that woman over there and things of that sort? Because if we all come together like the Golden State Warriors, it's strength in numbers. You know what I mean? But if we keep it all separate, (laughs) it's going to be harder for, you know, things to be progressive for us all. Absolutely. That is a great perspective. Yeah, and more people more people need to have that. <laughs> yeah, <for> Unfortunately, sure. <laughs> not everyone does. Yeah. But I'm going to circle back to your point. Um, for example, last night, Monday Night Football, right. Beth Moens yeah. was the first female play-by-play mm-hmm. uh, in 30 years. First ever to do Monday Night Football, which, amazing. I opened my Twitter feed and, you know, there are a ton of people celebrating her. But (laughs) in the same breath, you search her name on Twitter and the amount of negative attention and the amount of negative, just honestly foul feedback about her just because, honestly, because she's just a woman is unbelievable still to me. And um, I'm hoping that people like Jessica, people in the media who are taking a very... You know, they're being very brave doing a lot of this really taking important a work, taking yeah. a stand will change conversations like that. And hopefully more people will have a perspective like you, my friend. Right. It starts with us right here. Yes. You know, we got to we got to dish it out. It's got to start with us. So, yes. again, I thank you for joining me and assisting me to interview Jessica. It was really fun. She always she loves some, being here. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. She really has some good stuff for us. So, like I said, I appreciate you. Uh, for joining and for helping me to be able to do that. And as we close out this episode of Wake Up and Win, I can only leave you all the only way that I know how, and that is to stay woke and go win.